walking into a bank in a small town in Wyoming and saying you need to wire like 20 grand to China and here's the Swift key and all this other stuff. And they're looking at me like, sir, are you under duress? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. I feel like I'm doing these podcasts at the very last minute lately. It's just so busy, like phone calls, meetups, meetings. Um, and it just seems that we have so much momentum right now in the business, and it's an exciting time. I hope to share that story with you all this year. Maybe one takeaway of that is if things are a little slow on your desk, I mean, what's really working for me this year is just putting myself proactively around people who are building and growing this year. And that really rubs off. And that's one of the themes of today's episode. We're going to talk about skiing and property investing, somewhat related. A group of DCers descended on a very cool ski resort in Colorado for some days of what we're hoping to do a lot more in our online community, the Dynamite Circle. That's not uh, Washington, DC. That's the DC. Basically events that combine an activity that entrepreneurs love and it's sort of like business along the way, right? Like you're on the ski lift, you're talking shop, and it's a really great way to get to know people, especially when those groups are relatively small. So in a week here, I'm taking off to uh, Playa del Carmen to spend a whole week in a hotel with a bunch of other DCers, a more traditional format where we're doing meetups. We're also going to mix in some of the stuff where we're doing cenote trips and boat trips. And I think that's just a great way to get to know other people who are making it happen. So anyway, back to today's episode, something we want to do a lot more of in the future is these activities. So this was our first de-ski. Uh, so skiing, snowboarding, beer, hot chocolate, hot springs, very cool beanies with DC logos, all that stuff. I've seen the photos. I'm incredibly jealous. It looked like fun. So I had to call up today's guests, one of the major organizers and who over the years I've had many wonderful conversations with, but none on the podcast. So looking forward to doing this for the first time. He is Jeff Fruworth, who lives in Wyoming and who has been on quite the entrepreneurial journey, which resulted in him becoming a property investor, as you'll hear, something many entrepreneurs in our community are becoming increasingly interested in for a variety of reasons. His story, like a lot of ours, has many side swerves and plenty of learning. I loved having this conversation with Jeff. I hope you enjoy it as well. So we're just gonna roll this one. I started out by asking Jeff about the origins of D-Ski and how it all went down. Well, me and about 27 or so other DCers gathered in Northwest Colorado in a town called Steamboat Springs. We spent three or four days skiing and did a day of talks and activities. We went to a couple concerts. We went out for drinks a couple times and we generally caught lightning in a bottle, so to speak. Tell me about lightning in a bottle. What do you mean when you say you captured it? Well, going to a conference, it's kind of tricky to get the right balance between structured content and unstructured kind of smaller group activities where people can get to know each other better and chat business and life. Trying to 
make sure that we leave enough unstructured time for the serendipity that will allow good conversations. And so what did you do right? I think we got the amount of like structured content, right? And within that day that we were doing talks and doing the general like business sort of things, we also got the format, right? We had three speakers go just question and answers, no slides. We would get up, frame a discussion with our skills and what we were doing, and then anything we could answer questions on. Let me just read some of your copy here. I think it was kind of interesting to read it. DSKI is the first large DC event that's adventure focused with a side of business instead of all business. We're learning as we go, but here are a few things you can expect. If you don't know me, I'm Jeff. I've been in the DC since 2014 and I've been hosting the DC Colorado meetup since 2015. So you mentioned you live in Wyoming. Tell me about why are you hosting events in Colorado? I was hosting events in Colorado because at the time there were no DCers in Wyoming. And then GURBS arrived in Boulder. So we moved them in 2016 to Northern Colorado and more people have joined the group and moved to Denver since then. So now we've got about 10 or 15 people that consistently show up. It seems like Denver, Colorado in general has had a moment during the pandemic. What have you observed there? Absolutely. More people who want to spend a lot of time outside doing whatever it is they like to do, hiking, fishing, paddleboard, boat, whatever. And a lot of people have kind of flocked to the Denver area, anywhere really from Colorado Springs all the way up north to Fort Collins to get closer to the fun things they like to do on the weekends and after work and still be nearby a city of like reasonable size with city style amenities. And how was it that you formulated this idea? Because we have a lot of these more hybrid events on our calendar coming forward and we're looking to do more of them. So just trying to learn from you, like what inspired you to do it? Whenever we get together as a group, everybody's always talking about doing something active. And a lot of people in the group are skiers or snowboarders. So last year we kind of organized just within the Colorado group, a trip out to Steamboat. We got there late one afternoon. We all went and had dinner. There were four of us skied the next day and then we all headed home. So after that, it was kind of like, you know what? It would be really cool if we could do this and invite more people from the DC. Cause we had a lot of great conversations in the lift line, on the lifts, talking business and life as you kind of do when you get around a lot of people in the DC. And so we just thought, you know what? Why don't we just throw this at DCX event, make it mostly outdoor entertainment with a little bit of business. And if it's only the 10 people from Colorado, well, then that's just what it's going to be. <laughs> it looks like 30 people came to join you. An interesting mix of people as well. Yeah, we had a couple people came out from out of the country, a couple people from California. It was, yeah, it was a great mix of people. Some of them I knew really well beforehand, others I didn't know as well. So it was really nice to get to know everybody in a more casual setting than I was able to in Mexico City. There's something about a Mexico City event was caught 230, 250, depending on how many people were in the mix. But if there's like 30 people, you kind of get to know everybody or you have a moment with every single person at a 30 person event. Absolutely. And we were able to take advantage of that 
doing this over again, I would do this at the beginning instead of in the middle. But we gave everybody an opportunity to stand up when we were all in the conference room, stand up, introduce yourself, talk for a minute or so about what your business was and what you needed help with and what you could help with. And with 30 people giving everybody two minutes, it's about an hour. And with 240 people, that is just not possible, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, totally. Was there anything that surprised you about hosting an event like this? Yes. One of the things specifically, and Janine and I kind of went back and forth about this, was that Janine is our event coordinator at the DC. Steamboat was very, very difficult to get reservations anywhere. Nobody wanted to hold that many tables open for that long because they were able to cycle their regular customers through and get more revenue per table, basically. We did finally get one for Sunday night for a closing party. And I was able to talk to the woman who was taking care of us that night. And she said that as soon as ski season starts until the 10th of April, they are booked every night, no open tables, no walk-ins, no nothing. And then about April 10, it basically goes to zero until June. And I even felt it like when we went from Mexico City to PDC, there was like a few moments in the process where I was like, this is why we host events in cities. Because it's like almost like an exponential math problem. Like everybody has their own requirements and then you got 25 people with all their own requirements. And it's like cities are used to that stuff. And then you go to smaller towns and it's just, it's a lot harder logistically. It is. And one of the trickiest problems that we knew was going to happen and we did our best to take care of. But again, they kind of told us no was transportation. So the nearest airport is a solid airport in terms of the fact that it's by like a 15 or 16,000 person town. It gets a lot of good flights from, you know, Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, LA, all those. So a lot of people were able to fly directly to the airport. However, the airport is about 20 miles outside of town. So getting people to and from the airport was pretty tricky. And then our hotel was closer to the gondola and the base of the mountain, but further from downtown, which is where we had our dinners and our after parties and concerts and all of that we were fortunate enough to be able to do. So you really have to kind of pick your battles and with transportation, we had a lot of the Colorado group there. So people were driving and offering rides and then, you know, we definitely had a couple clown car moments in there. <laughs> but we did the best we could. Everybody kind of adapted and nobody really minded. But yeah, there's just not the infrastructure. I think that's what people sign up for, though, Jeff, like the chance to, to come in there to judge your event skills. Like they know that you're volunteering your time. Or did you feel that sense of like they were on your side? They're there to support you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was just nice to see everybody. And we learned a lot. We're probably going to do this next year, I would say, 95% odds. Everybody had a great time skiing. Everybody was skilled enough to navigate the mountain pretty much on their own, which I was kind of surprised about. I was worried that we'd have a bunch of really green skiers and a bunch of really experienced and like interested in terrain that powder and trees and all of it. So everybody like had to had like someone to ski with essentially, even if they were like a green skier or blue skier or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And we, the last afternoon, I think on Sunday, we all kind of started gathering together at one of the lodges and had a beer and, and a chat. And then the group ended up being like 15 or so 
people, I think, by the time we were ready to make our way down to the end of the mountain. So Lisa from the Leather Patch Company was kind of riding towards the back and got a video of all of us going down the mountain for the last time that day, which was awesome. I loved her beanies, by the way. They look so cool. Yeah, they're great. It's interesting to get your perspective on hosting events as like you had like this really fast learning curve and just as you probably can see all the mistakes and challenges and like, I'm really interested in supporting like this kind of thing because I just think it's so cool. Like it's really the quality time. We can drop off learnings that you had to Janine. We could get committed to logistics like a year out. That's one of the things that's really changed for us with DCBKK versus other things is like, we have this vision that's like really clear and then we can just go to Steamboat and like stamp that thing out. And then it's a lot clearer to attendees too that you could like double your attendance next year if that's a goal because of like there's so much clarity around how it works potentially. Yeah, I think one of our members is interested in business kind of in the events and transportation space. And he's looking (laughs) to buy some party buses or to drive people around. So that could be an option for us next year as well. And we'd have a whole lot of control over the transportation situation, which would make a lot of things easier. So essentially chartering a bus for the weekend, if you get ahead of that, that's like a really doable thing. Yeah, we went ahead and a couple of us went down in December uh, from the Colorado group and we met up in Steamboat and just scouted breweries and bars and places to eat and see who could serve kind of a group of 30 or 40 people because that was what we were expecting at the time and what kind of facilities we could have get recommendations for where to rent skis and transportation options and and all of that. And I feel like that part of the trip really, really helped. I think it's cool to see the investment you guys are making in the Colorado crew because you're getting stronger. More people want to go to Colorado. It feels like you're on the up and up. I'd like to shift gears to talk a little bit about your career And uh, I think it makes sense because like one of the themes on the TMBA recently, I think people are really looking for ways to invest their capital all time years in 2020 and continued that growth in 21. And particularly in America, there's a lot of laws that incentivize folks to turn that profit into real estate development and holdings. And so I'm hoping you can help some of us see our way into this for folks that maybe the average listener isn't going to want to focus full-time on real estate, but might be looking for that 80-20 or interesting insights that you picked up along the way so that they can better invest their profits. But to get there, I thought it'd be interesting if you could just lay out a little bit of your background. So I got a degree in geography back in the day and then have just been in the mapping and programming space more or less since then. So I worked for a consulting company where we made sure that people developing wind turbines weren't going to kill a bunch of eagles where they were developing these wind turbines. I worked for the state government doing effluent monitoring. So anyone that's kind of pumping groundwater out of the ground to get the oil that's in there, making sure that water is clean. And then I had a job doing database stuff in the Endangered Species Program as well. So you have a respectable career. When did you decide to start doing things that were more entrepreneurial? That was in probably 2009 or 2010. And I had just finished school and I had like, I'd gotten my first job and I had 50 grand of student loan debt and I was making like 50 grand a year before taxes. And I was like, 
I need to do something about this, right? Like, so I, I started with a blog and back then it was, nobody had blogs and it was super easy and you could rank for stuff. And there was a whole lot of buying and selling links going on. And like, like one, one year, I think it was 2011, I made like 12 grand and I was like, well, this is nice. Those first two or three transfers get into your PayPal and you're like, oh, this is like real actual money. Like how else can I keep doing this and get more of this, which led me to Amazon affiliate websites and then to the DC when... What's an example of an Amazon affiliate site you or somebody like you would have built? I don't know if you can share the product now. And, and if you could take me back one moment, like writing a blog in 2009 for profit is like relatively early adopter. What was the thing that turned you on to the scene, so to speak? There were so many like personal financial blogs. None of them were super old, but I was reading a lot of them for like how to lower some of my bills so I can put more towards debt and how, you know, how to do a lot of these other things that were all still fairly new to me at the time and just different strategies to pay off debt. So there was like get rich slowly and a simple dollar and some of these ones that are like behemoths now and are no longer controlled by the people who were controlling them back day. Do you ever read Early Retirement Extreme? Yeah, Jacob Fisker. He was talking about if you want to save a little bit of money instead of buying like a whisk or a blender, you could like rubber band two forks together sitting like opposite directions. And I was like, that's okay. Like I just remember reading that. I was like, that's a little too far for me, but it's a fine strategy. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So you're reading these retirement blogs and you start one of your own, which is, hey, I'm going to get out of this 50 grand debt. Do you remember the moment you paid off that student loan debt? Yeah, it was great. I was debt-free for all of like 48 hours. So I had paid off all of the student debt and I had this crappy car and of course it died. It was an 82 Saab 92. It was really fun to drive, but man, that thing was not safe. I was engaged at the time and we were about to buy a house. So I think two or three days before we closed on the house. I sent the last bit over to whatever remaining loan I had. And so I was debt free. And then like on the Friday, we signed all the loan paperwork. So I went from like zero debt to, I don't know, half of $130,000 in debt in two days. So I, I didn't, I wasn't debt free for very long. <laughs> so you're writing the blog and where does the FBA opportunity come across your desk? My most successful one was selling um, hunting stuff. Um, and writing reviews for hunting equipment and then linking them to Amazon. I did a lot of things right with that niche, kind of unknowingly. I was hunting its time, so I knew how to speak the lingo. I was reviewing a product that could go from anywhere at the low level, like 150 bucks to a mid-range unit, which was about 300 to a high-range unit, which was about 1500 So I didn't have to sell a whole lot to make a whole lot. And then I kind of use that as justification to go to a one day business mastermind in Austin with the DC in what, like July of 2014. That sounds right. Yeah. The W hotel. Yeah, that was at the W. So I, I went there and then I had, there were a bunch of people talking about FBA. How much were your internet incomes at the time mm, that you came to that event? I think between 1500 and two grand, And that was since I was selling something specific for hunting and that was the seller, that was kind of the low end. It really started to pick up that fall. Like it fit very much seasonal. And so I started looking into FBA. Was that Austin event the first time that you bumped into a bunch of other people making money online or? I had been 
going to what is now FinCon, but at that time was called the Financial Bloggers Conference. I had been going to that every year since year one. So I was familiar with the online income side of it. However, a lot of the, the people at FinCon were writers or doing credit card affiliate stuff. So it wasn't, it was a very much still trade your time for money, not lever other people's time and your money for more money. It went really well for about a month and a half. And then I got a Google penalty and it went to zero while I was on a plane on my way to the next FinCon in New Orleans. And I get like, I get off the plane to a ton of emails like, Hey, are you guys seeing weird things with your traffic today? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't looked yet, you know, been on a plane all morning. So that basically died. And it was then that the words, what don't build your castle on someone else's land kind of rang true for me. So I, how did that emotionally hit for you at the time? At the time you have a primary income W2 income. So how did it feel? I guess it did not feel good by any means, because that was the first time it had really started to ramp up. It didn't feel like a personal failure or anything because we're using gray hat strategies to be sure. So, so, well, I guess this is what you get. What kind of lesson can you take from this thing? It's like, all right, well, try something else because you don't want to wake up again another day, especially if this is your only source of income and have none. I was seriously considering leaving my W2 job at that time. And then when that happened, it's like, okay, well, it's a good thing you didn't. Totally. So then, you know, I heard a lot of people were talking about FBA, both in the DC forums and at that one day mastermind. So was decided to give my shot at that. I had a guy who's in the DC in my mastermind who was also making a ton of money on FBA. And <laughs> I, I found a product, which was a bag for disc golf. And, you know, I, I went through like everybody says to do and read all the reviews of the top selling products, make some changes and make it better. So I did all that. Definitely was really fortunate to be in the DC at this time, put something in the forums or in the activity or whatever, like, Hey, I'm looking to get an FBA. Can any of you guys give me connections? And Connected with Derek Dodd, who basically put a supplier in China right in the palm of my hand. That saved me, I don't know how many iterations and how much time. And then just took a stack of cash I had from the affiliate sites and plowed it into my minimum order, which I think was like 500 or a thousand, which walking into a bank in a small town in Wyoming and saying, you need to wire like 20 grand to China. And here's the Swift key and all this other stuff. And they're looking at me like, sir, are you under duress? So yeah, that was another experience. And the FBA went well enough, but wasn't as profitable as I'd hoped. And during like that kind of time while the FBA business was getting off the ground, I was going through a divorce. And as part of my blog reading from the financial side years before, I had been reading all these strategies on how to acquire rental units and was fortunate enough that it's okay, it's just going to be you. And I think my daughter was two at the time or almost two, and it's just going to be you and you most of the time and her some of the time. So you can kind of call all the shots now and no one's going to be around. So I sold out of the FEA business, stacked up the cash, and then was fortunate to find a nice little four unit building, not far from where I was living at the time in a quiet neighborhood. It was completely empty. So I moved into one of them, rented the other three out that covered the mortgage and gave me, I think an extra two or 300 bucks. 
a month and I kept working my W2 job, kind of like licked my wounds emotionally from the end of the marriage and the exiting of the online businesses and just kind of waited for a while and got another kind of lump sum payment from the split equity in the house that my ex and I shared and used that to buy a seven unit rental building that was like a definite heroin den. That was a lot of rehab involved and a lot of lessons that I learned. Any sort of rehab on any house project is going to take you three times as long and cost twice as much or the other way around. There is enormous upside potential in places like that as long as you have the cash to get it and get it done quickly. I learned a couple very expensive lessons about property managers and how their interests aren't necessarily always aligned with the owner of the property. What's one instance in which it's not? Okay, so you, Dan, the landlord, has a four-unit apartment and one of them goes vacant. Your job at that point is to get the vacancy filled as fast as possible, right? Because you'll be down like 1500 bucks for a one-bedroom apartment or whatever. And a property manager has that except for at scale. So if they're working for 15 or 20 other people doing showings and stuff, their time's going to be limited. They won't be able to put their full attention there. And if their fee is 10% or $150 a month off that unit, it's not a whole lot of skin off of their nose, but it is a ton off of yours. Makes sense. Was there a moment when, like, when did you realize that real estate was going to be the thing? That happened when I got about 30. So that happened towards the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. I was at the point where I was like, okay, none of these need any more major rehabs. Like I've replaced all the water heaters everywhere and all the furnaces everywhere and all the roofs everywhere and all of these like big ticket $30,000 siding jobs and all of it, all of that had been done. So there wasn't like any super expensive maintenance on the horizon and there was only some of the smaller things, which it's like, okay, if I started doing more of these myself, I'd widen the margin and get a little more money. And rents in this town have also gone up about 25% since I bought my first one. It kind of took me by surprise, honestly. Why is that? For the longest time, especially as I was going through the rehab on that seven unit that was the, the drug den, it was always me taking my savings and feeding the rentals and feeding the rentals. And it took about until like 2018 or 2019 to get those things to a point where they were breaking even and being able to handle like some of the bigger ticket. Somebody moved out and this needs to be repainted and I need to pay somebody to do it because I don't have the time. You were essentially like breaking even on the rental, but you were illiquid in terms like all the wealth you were building was in the asset appreciation. Yeah. And once I got to the point where most of the bigger ticket expenses had kind of been taken care of, then I started, like, I wouldn't have to pay out of my own pocket for something to get the floors refinished and repainted and swap out light fixtures when someone new moved in. And I felt like it needed a little bit of updating. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, 
many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. I'm trying to figure out what you see the on-ramps are for others in the community. When folks ask you questions about real estate, what kinds of things are they asking you about? It can be anything and everything. It's a lot of money. Well, there's real estate is for a lot of people, the biggest transaction they're ever going to make. So kind of getting into a deal, finding one, and then of course, financing, or if they choose to make cash purchases, different financing instruments, how to kind of handle that, what to do if the property is distressed, but still looks like a good deal. Those always come up. And then the big one that I've been getting lately is taxes. People, a lot of DCers, they're exiting SASs and products and info products, or they're just churning out profits from their main business left, right, and center with no exit. And they're getting soaked by the federal government. And if they live in an unfortunate location, that's why they're getting soaked by the state government. So there's like, all right, I heard this is a great kind of tax harbor. Like, how does it work? What are you doing? What do I need to do? So questions like that. Yeah. I mean, isn't that part of the reason that when you say you're analyzing deals, like real estate's your cash flow engine, whereas for a lot of wealthy people, they look at the end of the year and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to make a million dollars this year and the government's going to take 450,000. So instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and buy a million dollars worth of real estate, or I'm going to buy $500,000 worth of real estate and it's going to be an apartment complex that I got to put $200,000 into. So now I get 700000 tax-free and I got operational expenses attached to it. And now if I need the cash flow from that income, I can just borrow against the property, which is fully paid off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime that you have the option of buying something that will slowly go up in value over time or giving someone else 450 k it's kind of a no-brainer, right? And that's that doesn't even take into account the depreciation benefits of real estate and some of the other kind of unique strategies you can employ on an exit of the asset that will further help shield your initial input into the asset and your gains from the government. So like what you're referring to is like, if you were to sell, you just correct me where I'm wrong here, like you buy the... F- half a million dollar property 
you sell it, you make that profit. Can't just, as long as you buy another property, you don't have to pay taxes on it or you pay minimal taxes? That's correct. You have to do what they call a 1031 exchange. And you just kind of, you need to notify the people involved in the transaction that that's where you, what you're going to do because the title company has to do stuff. And, and then you have, I believe it's 90 days to locate an asset in which you are going to purchase with those funds. But yes, you can keep okay. deferring taxes in perpetuity that way as the tax code is written now. Well, it's another reason why I like sometimes these prices, like I remember driving around, I can still do it, drive around in neighborhoods and be like, how is everything worth this much? It's strange, but like this asset class, unlike the milk in the grocery store, well, milk is probably a bad example, but unlike a lot of the prices that we're encountering with every day are like propped up, like you said yourself, this is the biggest transaction most individuals will ever make, but also most organizations, most wealthy people. And so there's this kind of multiplicative effect of the tax benefits, of the depreciation, of the strange laws that lead up to these ability for people to justify enormous investments. Sure. It's not going to get you some J-style growth curve that a software product would, but the train still goes up the hill, as it were you know, interact with a lot of DCers who were just obsessed with the opposite of real estate. We're obsessed with things being virtual and not associated with the location. So you would be one of the unique, I think a, a more unique member in that you focus on physical real estate. Do you think that's true based on your experience or is that just my analysis? Yes and no. In 2016 and 2017, absolutely very much unique in that regard. And I was very much out there, like on my own little island, like, hey guys, uh, I've got rental houses, so I can't really talk much about churn and LTV and, and all of this and fulfillment or, or whatever issues you guys were dealing with. But now a lot of people, especially in Mexico City, it seemed like everyone wanted to talk about it. How are you analyzing deals? What, like, what's your process? Where are you finding these things? Like, how are you getting into the game? There's a handful of other people in the DC who are in real estate, either the short-term Airbnb game or they have their own rental properties. It's a small, but definitely growing number. What are some opportunities that you see for webcats to get into the real estate game that might be a little bit non-obvious? It would depend on exactly how they wanted to deploy the capital. They just want a cash producing asset in a different asset class and they they didn't really care they could go to the midwest and buy like a 10 unit apartment building in ohio or something and then hire a property manager and just collect a check once a month i have a woman who's in florida who works for me she handles all the communication with the tenants all she schedules all the maintenance and repairs and and she does like a lot of the heavy lifting. So that kind of frees up my time to look for more deals and analyze more deals and just generally pick and choose. Like if I feel like doing some of the repair work myself, like I can go do that. I spent this morning tiling and grabbing a, a kitchen floor and one that I hope to have finished by the end of the week. It's interesting. I think a lot of us in our businesses on the web, often we're reacting to like the marketplace of like, you know, how a certain channel how much it costs to acquire a customer from the channel. 
or maybe what our competitors are doing. But a lot of it is kind of like we're making our own little markets, you know, every day. Whereas real estate's a little bit of the opposite. Of course, you can like make improvements to a property or expand a property. But a lot of it is also, like you said, it's like analyzing the deals. Like you're you're perceiving what's already out in the world and trying to find an inefficiency in how it's valued. What are some ways you do that? Finding deals now, at least in town, is a lot trickier than it was. The first two apartments I bought were good deals by any metric that you typically use to analyze a real estate deal. And I picked them up off the MLS. You cannot do that in town anymore. So you're getting Instagram ads. Because just a lot of people have money and they, they want to invest. Yeah. And people are starting to flip houses in town. So, or they, I mean, they were five years ago, but now they're everywhere. So that's one thing. But one of the best ways to make money in real estate is to take the deals on that no one else wants to touch. What can you see that's not there? If I looked at a building last summer that had been hanging on the market for quite a while. And the main issue was like, this is a very, I live in a very old town in a very old neighborhood, Western United States speaking. So there was a five unit apartment building and a two bedroom house, but they were on the same tax lot and shared the same water tap. So there was plenty of money in there as long as you were willing to pay to dig up the water and sewer line and then pay the $13,000 to the water utility to get the water meters separated from the apartment to the house. Then you could sell off the house. You could fix up the apartments basically and, and functionally double the rent, which is what happened. Fix up the house when that rent also went up double and then split the water meter off in the next 12 months. And then all of a sudden this thing was on the market for 475 for four or five months as a dog. And it got picked up for 445, I think. And now you've got just a five minute, five unit apartment building alone is generating over five grand to rent in month. And the house will go for about 1800. So you're looking at something that was making, if I remember correctly, under like just at or around four grand a month cash before any expenses were out to now it's something that's seven or above and that increase in value alone will pay for the bulldozers and the diggers and the tap fee that you're going to have to pay to the city and you can sell one of those parcels off get all of your cash back out and move on to the next one and keep one of them because you have like the capital backstop to do all those things to start when you say backstop what do you mean a gigantic pile of money in your bank account <laughs> Got it. What amount of money in your bank account should you have in order to start seriously considering becoming a passive real estate investor? It depends. So if you buy a new construction home with the intent of renting it out, that becomes a question of personal comfortability, right? Like as long as the numbers work and you're making a little money every month, it's highly unlikely that the furnace and the water heater won't go out. It's brand new highly unlikely that really anything will break for the next three or four years. And then if you're comfortable and, and willing to do the work yourself, like that's, we'll lower that amount even more. But if you have older buildings that have a lot of deferred maintenance or any other sort of debt like that in terms of old roof or whatever, then you'd probably want about 25 grand, I think would be 
a solid number, obviously, depending on the size of your portfolio. But 25 grand, at least here in town, is enough for a full rehab of a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment that was like a thousand square feet. And that's aside from your mortgage down payment, right? Correct. That just needs to be sitting there ready to go whenever someone else decides that they need to stick a vacuum into your savings account. What is your estimated return rate for someone? I mean, this is like super depending, but what would be the range for someone like passively involved in this stuff that they could expect on apartments or homes? When I started, I kind of set out some deal parameters and that was kind of like an eight to 12% return just on my cash. I didn't want to buy any huge projects. I wasn't really factoring appreciation in of more than like one and a half percent a year, which was a miscalculation that ended up moving very much in my favor. But if you just kind of want to sink a chunk of money down into something and hire a property manager, these days you're probably looking at between a six and nine percent return. And that's on the total value of the property? Not That's not just your cash in, right? That's on your cash in. And then depending on exactly how you want to figure this, like when I analyze deals, I don't count appreciation because it's not something I can really easily control. And I don't count tax losses because again, that could, I could get rug pulled on that one year as well. So I don't count those two things, but those two things obviously will choose up your return quite significantly. When people are looking at these numbers and, and the work and the kind of responsibility involved, why not just go buy dividend earning stocks? You get price appreciation, but you don't get any tax loss. You don't generate any tax losses on that. And I mean, like, I know there are a handful of DCers that I personally can have talked to about, and I would bet there are way more, is that like some of these people have massive tax problems, which is to say they're like, scratching off a half million dollar check to the feds once a year. And that's even after doing quarterly estimated payments of some ridiculous number. Some people just want to give less of their money to the federal government just, you know, because they want to keep it themselves or because they disagree philosophically with how the government spends their money or, or whatever. On the online side, we've got the four hour work week, but you mentioned some other things. Is there some Bibles to this sort of approach? of growing wealth through real estate? The best one, Bigger Pockets has a book called, you know, Ways to Buy Real Estate for Low or No Money Down. That one is very solid. Rich Dad, Poor Dad gets kicked around a lot. It can apply here. It's not necessarily all the same. I haven't consumed a whole lot of real estate specific content in about three or four years just because I've been living it. And I don't need to get shiny object syndrome. So I'm like, all right, this is my strategy and I'm just going to keep hacking away at it. And I don't need some, and this honestly has probably cost me money, especially with the Airbnb furnished rentals sort of thing. This has probably cost me a fair bit of money, but I have a road and I am going to continue to walk down it. So I don't need the latest and greatest strategy. What an interview. What a guy. Big thanks to Jeff for swinging by the pod this week. Really looking forward to doing more of these sort of experimenting with these activity-based meetups in the future. In fact, we have one for the Northern Lights coming up here in Iceland. And yeah, it's pretty cool as well as like sort of our normal stable of events 
coming back online. That gives me a lot of optimism for the rest of the year. And hopefully we can do D-Ski again next year as well. If you have any ideas about what you'd like to see us do, drop us a line. We are here. We respond to your queries. My email is dan at tropicalmba.com. And producer Jane is jane at the same domain. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning as always. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.